Well, how good to see you, and thanks so much for being here. And um, having had an extra hour of sleep, it doesn't work if you're a parent, does it? It's just it's a really bad idea if, you're, if you've got young kids, but for the rest of us, it's quite a good thing. And um, great to be speaking about John's Gospel, and I'm sure that you've already reflected that John's Gospel is a little bit different from the other Gospels. It's a carefully constructed meditation on who is Jesus. And it's organized in the way that, that John loves to do that around signs and symbols and numbers. And so it's traditionally described as having seven miracles, because seven is a sum of perfection, isn't it? And it, it, it kind of, those seven almost encompassed a full range of miracles that John said there's not enough room if every, you know, there's not enough room in the earth to contain all that Jesus did, but I'm going to give you seven. That'll give you a good perspective. And also seven discourses, seven, seven bunches of, of teaching that kind of, again, help us. And, and the, the purpose that John tells us that he's written is so that we might believe. And in believing, having, have life in his name. So that's why John's gospel is written. And I think that for, for me, as I read John's gospel, the most important thing that that leaps out at me is, who is this man, Jesus Christ? And one of the things I love about John's gospel is that he describes Jesus very much as a human being like us. But the other th amazing thing about John's gospel is that he describes Jesus as uniquely God's son. And somehow he manages to do both things really well. He's able to kind of celebrate the fact that Jesus is, like we are, fully human. At the same time, he's able to celebrate the full divinity of Jesus Christ and hold it together. That's a wonderful tension, a wonderful both and, but it's absolutely basic to our understanding of who Jesus is. He's fully God and fully man. So I'm going to read from John chapter 2 of the first 11 verses. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's just, just go through these verses. Let's be thinking about who is Jesus and what are miracles all about anyway. 
Now, I think one, one of the things that, that's true of, of John's Gospel, that, that John references days. On the third day, it says here. Did you pick that up? And actually, if we go through the narrative of John's Gospel, we'll find that the third day is, in fact, the seventh day of the, the record, because... Um, he starts off talking this day, the next day. And if you, if you go back, you have to take my word for it. There are probably seven days. This is like the seventh day into the, the story that John's telling. And, and maybe that's in itself deliberate. Because there's something about the seventh day where, where God is, um, in, in the creation story, God is resting. And John's gospel brings new creation ideas into the drawing from the old creation story. And so if you, if you track again with, with, with John's gospel, it's a, in the beginning book, isn't it? You know, the, the, the whole gospel starts with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And it reminds us right back in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And here is Jesus being like his father on the seventh day, doing something that's creative and beautiful and in a kind of holiday environment, if you like. A, a Jewish wedding is a, is a big holiday. It doesn't just happen for a few hours. I, I took a wedding on, on yesterday, actually, and it, you know, it, it was kind of probably quite brief, really. A Jewish wedding could go on for a week, and it's, it's a big celebration. And here, Jesus and his followers and his family, I guess they're all really well known to the, the bridal party, but they're invited to come to a holiday. And, and here it is. And, and yet... There's something goes wrong. They just run out of something that really helps the party go with the swing. And I don't know whether, what that tells you about, about God and about Jesus, but you know, God, in part of his creation provision, created fermentation. Actually, God has always been turning water into wine. Whenever it happens, God has been turning water into wine. There's just one occasion where he did it really quickly. It's really speeded up. On this occasion, it's speeded up. It's the kind of thing God is always doing. C.S. Lewis calls this a miracle of the old creation. God doing amazing things in his creation. And um, so what does this tell me about, about God? Well, I'm kind of tracking here. There's something about this narrative which is meant to take me right back to those early creation stories and about who Jesus is. So here we are at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He hasn't done any miracles yet. And when his mother sees that they've run out of wine, she says, Jesus, you know, they've, they've, so what, what was Mary thinking? Did she think Jesus was going to do something amazing? I think she did. And I guess that's, that's quite a big deal because for Jesus' own family, they had to wrestle a little bit with who is Jesus. It's not surprising, is it, that growing up with Jesus, nurturing Jesus, you'd kind of think, well, we have this angelic vision, but is he really? But I think for Mary, that this, this, this woman who pondered all things in her heart, held on to the revelation of who Jesus is. So something in her, I think, that recognized we're in a new phase now. And, and again, there's a few tensions around that because Jesus says to her, you know, actually my time has not yet come. But she's going to think, well, I think your time has come. 
And I, I wonder whether just sometimes um, God is provoked by us. Would Jesus have turned water into wine if his mother hadn't interfered? I don't know. You can, you can ask the question, actually. Um, is God susceptible to our needs and our, our askings, our intercessions? And will he do things that wouldn't have happened if we hadn't done things? That's a big question. Um, and I, I'm not going to give you the, the final answer. But what I do know is there's something provocative about what Mary did that stimulated a miracle. In the Bible, miracles often happen when there's something provocative and when there's a need. And sometimes the miracles are driven just by the asking. One of the questions Jesus often asked people was, what do you want me to do for you? People would come to him, what do you want me to do for you? But sometimes Jesus would do things on his own initiative. So, miracles can happen either way. Miracles can happen because we've got a need, and we ask God, help us in our need. It might be a miracle of provision. God, I'm really struggling financially. Will you help me in my need? It could be a miracle of healing. God, I'm really struggling with this thing that I'm carrying in my body. Will you help me? But sometimes miracles happen the other way around. And God takes the initiative. And in, in John's Gospel, we see that a bit later on. We see Jesus going to what's the equivalent of a hospital, basically a lot of sick people around a pool of Bethsaida. And he goes there incognito, finds one person, and says, do you want to get well? The man hasn't asked him, doesn't even know who Jesus is. So I've been here for 38 years. And Jesus says, pick up your mountain walk. And later on in that chapter, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And sometimes the Father tells Jesus, I'm going to move now. I want you to be alongside what I'm doing. And I think both those models of, of miracle can be true for us today. Sometimes we're asking God to bless our need. And sometimes we're trying to watch what he's doing and try and cooperate with him and go where he sends us. And for me, one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of championing a little bit at the moment is, God, what are you doing? And how can I bless what you're doing? How can I keep in step with your Holy Spirit? Anyway, that's a digression in a way, and rather unplanned. But here, there's something that's provoked, and it's a human need. And, and Jesus responds to human need, doesn't he? Do you remember when he saw a, a widow coming out of the, the village of Nain, and she had her only son lying dead on the coffin, and his heart went out to her, and he raised the son from the dead. So we can see about God and see about Jesus that God is responsive to our need. And we might think, well, it's only a wedding, it's not that big a deal. Why did Jesus say, my time has not yet come, do you think? Any, any guesses? Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's a good thought, Jimmy. Yeah, maybe um, he's just, maybe he's going to the Father with that Father, is it all right? <laughs> My mother said, "Do this." Is it all right? You know, um, there's something which which commentators on the Bible call the messianic secret. Basically, whenever a miracle happens, there tends to be a disturbance in the force, to use Star Wars language. You know, something kicks off when a miracle happens, and I I wonder myself whether miracles 
destabilize creation as we know it. Maybe they destabilize the spiritual powers that are hidden behind our world. And that includes the demonic powers as well as the, the power of, of, of the, um, the angelic and the, 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 the realm of God. Because whenever Jesus does a miracle, there tends to be something that kicks off a little bit. Particularly the last sign in John's Gospel, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, that's a very deliberate and significant sign, which Jesus holds back. His t- the time to come and heal Lazarus isn't right, because the time to raise him from the dead is what God's doing then. And of course, on the back of that, there's the plot to kill Jesus. It's right that Caiaphas says, you know, it's better that one man should die. And so that miracle precipitated the cross. But miracles often stir up a backlash. You see that in the ministry of Jesus very often, don't you? Jesus does something. It it kind of speeds up, if you like, the final confrontation, the final greatest sign of all, which is the sign of Jesus crucified and rising from the dead. And I wonder sometimes why God doesn't give us miracles because we're not ready for the backlash. I think miracles precipitate the end of the age, actually. And certainly for Jesus, sometimes he would not do a miracle or would want people to be quiet about the miracle because he didn't want his messiahship to be revealed too early. He only had three years with those followers. He wanted to build a community of men and and also the women who followed him who would trust him and be ready to take that mission on. And he didn't want to go to the cross before it was time. And so the messianic secret, people think, is actually let's keep it a little bit on the download until we're ready to go really public, you know? And it's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes really public. And that precipitates the cross. Anyway, maybe the time's come, but, but whatever, whatever, Jesus acts and um, he, 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 he does that. But I wonder whether he has been living all the time in the shadow of the cross. My time has not yet come. It's a shadow of the cross moment. But there's something which I really love about the the fact that the first miracle recorded in John is water into wine. And I, I really like that because I think the sign of the bridegroom, who is Jesus? Well, is he fully God? Because he's a God who does creative miracles like turning water into wine. Is he fully human? Because he's got a mother <laughs> who has a bit of a, a nag at him. And, um, and he's kind of, oh, actually, is this okay? Is he the bridegroom? If you, if you look at the other Gospels, when John the Baptist introduces Jesus to the world, he points him out. And John the Baptist says about himself, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. He must increase and I must decrease. And John the Baptist language about Jesus, he's the bridegroom. So what, who's the bride if, if Jesus is a bridegroom? Well, you are. Not you individually, but you as the people of God. All the way through the Bible, one of the images for God's people is that they're the bride. They're, the, they're that in a kind of covenant relationship. And in the Old Testament, God speaks of, of Israel like a, an unfaithful wife at times. And in the New Testament, we know that it goes towards a final conclusion when the church appears coming down of heaven like a bride dressed for her husband and made herself beautiful, made herself ready. So we, as the church, are 
the covenant people of God, the, the people that Jesus loves and gives his life for. So Paul, in writing in Ephesians, can say, talk about marriage, he says, actually, I'm really talking about the way the relationship of Christ and his church. When um, we talk about love and service and making pure and all that kind of stuff. So, isn't it fitting that the first miracle that Jesus does is one that creates a whole lot of wine to help a wedding go with a real swing? Because it's looking forward to the end of the age. And there's something really lavish and crazy about how much wine is made, isn't there? I mean, I think a conservative estimate is there's 120 gallons of wine. So, I mean, it might have been a lot more than that, but it's a lot of wine. And what does that tell you about God for a start? Well, one thing it tells you is that he is lavish and generous beyond the kind of tight boundaries that we have. Do you know, I find God is incredibly lavish and generous with me. I mean, where are you a bit kind of bounded, boundaried, so much so far? Probably there's all kinds of ways in which we're bounded. One of the ways in which we're really bounded is about forgiveness, isn't it? You know, I'm happy to forgive someone a little bit, once or twice, three times and you're out, you know? <laughs> and, and, and when Jesus is asked questions about boundaries of forgiveness, and, and, and Peter says, what? Seven times, maybe. That would be really generous. Jesus kind of demonstrates the heart of God, says God is actually a lot more lavish than you. Seventy times seven. It's almost like a forever number. You know, it's, it's a big number. It's like an, almost an infant number. God is so generous. And, and he's generous. In this, this demonstrates that the nature of God, that he is more lavish, more unbounded than we are. And the nature of who God is always challenges my limited view, that I want to make sure there's enough for me. I'm a bit limited in my generosity compared with God. But when I see who Jesus is and see what the heart of God is, I'm challenged to enter into the economy of God, which is lavish and generous. And you know what? there are times when I've done that, and I've found that God's generosity has been there for me, and he does miracles of provision. I often recount a time when I was working for Bristol Methodist Centre, and where I, I kind of was on a low wage and had lots of pressures on my finances and just didn't take very much money into work because whenever I took money to work, people who were homeless and inner-city in folk who perceived that me as being much wealthier than I would always ask me for money, and I would kind of feel that, come oh, on, they're asking for money, I better give it to them. So I just stopped taking money in to work with me. And then uh, I read Jackie Pullinger describing the economy of God and she talked about her own kind of reckless generosity working in Hong Kong and how she kind of um, sold her precious musical instrument to, to release someone from debts to a trafficker. And they, he just laughed at her. She'll be back. But she talked about the economy of God. And I was so moved by that that I thought, oh, I better start taking money in and giving it away. And that week, um, someone stuffed 500 quid through my door in notes. Never knew who it was or why. But it just felt like a, a little bit of a message from God. Look, if you're going to be in my economy... Uh, then you're going to get blessed. And honestly, I would say God has been good to me in so many ways. So, um, I guess I'm just struck by Mary in this passage as well. I think Jesus um, really elevates women. And um, 
the church has been pretty bad at elevating the role of women. And I really like the fact that in this first miracle, a woman is really strategic. And also, she, she comes, you know, she, she says to the servant, well, do what he tells you. She's kind of taken over the role of the master of the feast. And, and it's significant, isn't it, at the end of uh, Jesus' life, it's a woman that meets him in the garden. And uh, she also goes and tells his followers, yeah, go and meet him in Galilee. So that's his little side, isn't it? But um, Jesus likes to big up women because they're fantastic and uh, faithful, uh, unlike men very often. And I suppose, again, I, I was saying that this first miracle speaks about something about weddings being significant in understanding who Jesus is and that he's lavish and actually, he is the bridegroom, and we're the bride. And Jesus said to his disciples on the Last Supper, in Matthew, Matthew records Jesus saying this, as he gives them wine, he says, this is the blood, new covenant. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. This first miracle points to the end of the age. And miracles always do that, I think. They speak into the now need that we have. But they go beyond that now need and point to the bigger thing. And and this first miracle, whether or not people understood it like that, I think points to the end. It points to the cross. It points to the new heavens and the new earth. It points to the time where there will be enough for everyone, where there will be no needs among us. It points to the fact that at the end of all things, we will be in a joyful celebration, a wedding feast that doesn't last a week but goes on into eternity, where there's no more pain, no more tears, because God himself is in our midst. And here, in advance, here's God in our midst. Here in our advance, there's enough for everyone. Here, in advance, there's a joyful celebration which we're all included in. Here, in advance, is God taking the ordinary things of life and making them extraordinary. That's miracles. That's Jesus. That's the kingdom of God coming on earth as one day um, it will be fully revealed. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And whenever God's kingdom comes on earth, there's a little bit of miracle. And whenever God's kingdom comes on earth, there's a bit of resistance because there's another kingdom at play in our world. The powers of darkness do not like the kingdom of God. It dethrones them. It destabilizes them. They resist it. But we're people who are kingdom seekers. And so as I, as I finish today, I'm going to pray with you about just two or three things coming from this little passage. Is there anybody in the room today who needs a miracle? Maybe just put your hand up if, if that's true for you. So there's two hands, three, maybe three hands. People need a miracle. Four hands. Well, that's, those are big things. 
You need a miracle because in your life, there's something that only God can fix, I guess. That's what you're saying. There isn't a human resource to sort this one out. Maybe we've come to the end of our human resources, just like in this story. They'd come to the end of their human resource of, of wine. And today, I just want to pray with you that God would come into your circumstance. We're asking God to bring his blessing, to bring his future kingdom into that now that you're experiencing. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does, what does the kingdom coming look like in that miracle you need right now? Is it a healing thing? Is it a restoration thing? So just, just while you're sitting, just without drawing attention to you, just put your hands out. It's a little open sign. I'm going to pray for God's kingdom to come on the bit of earth that's you today. Lord Jesus, we believe that if you were here in this room today, you would say to us, what is it that you want me to do for you? And so today, Lord God, we're honest with what we want you to do for us. Lord, there's pain in our offering today around this place of need. And I want to pray, Lord God, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in that place of need, in that place of pain, in that place of lack, in that place that needs healing. Holy Spirit, will you come? And first of all, Lord God, will you bring your presence, the very presence of Jesus, who looks with eyes of mercy and reaches out his hand and rests his hand on that situation. Will you come, Lord God, to deliver us from evil, from the powers that are too strong for us? And Lord, will your goodness come? And your provision, your enoughness, your lavish mercy, in Jesus' name. And if you're saying yes to that prayer, as I prayed it, later on today, if there's a ministry time, why not come forward and ask someone just to keep praying that with you and actually lay hands on, on you and, and ask for, for, for more of God's kingdom to come on earth, on the bit of earth that's you in your situation as it is in heaven. But just the other thing I want to pray is that we might see Jesus as he really is. And for each of us to, to leave here today with a bigger picture of Jesus or a refreshed picture of Jesus. Lord Jesus, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God who came and lived among us and took flesh, the Word of God living with us. Lord, you're the Son of Mary who, in your humanity, laid aside your majesty and your power and trusted in the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do those kingdom works. Lord Jesus, today, you're here. Open our eyes to see you. Open our hearts to receive you. Open our hands to bless what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.